Hi there, Connect Church. I hope that you are well. Those are words I don't take for granted anymore because um, we have seen so much sickness around us. But I've just also been so astounded by just what God is doing in people's lives and testimony after testimony or families that have gone through hard times and individuals who've gone through hard times but are still praising God. And it's so beautiful to be part of church um, as we have our anchor in Jesus Christ. And today I'm going to be finishing off our series in, in 1 Kings and looking at 1 Kings chapter 21, which isn't the last um, chapter in Kings, but it's our last installment. And it's a, um, a kind of a Bible installment that you might um, know well. You might have heard it at Sunday school. It's, a, it's a, the incident of Naboth's vineyard. And um, as I was processing it and going through the scriptures again and reading it, it just reminded me of how... Um, God entrusts people with so much, so much responsibility that every day we face with choices that either make or break us. And just the beauty of being a child and being so naive and um, not always realizing the weight of the world yet and just how we can celebrate being around kids. That's why probably in this season I've loved being around children. And I was laughing at my daughter last week. Um, she was she was walking around telling me her ring finger was she was telling me it's her purply finger. And I kept on correcting and saying it was her ring finger. And she was saying, no, it's her purply. And I couldn't figure out why. And she's three years old. She couldn't explain why. And then my son, who, you know, often if you don't understand a kid, try and get another child to interpret for you. Um, he came into the picture and explained it was because her little finger is her pinky finger. And she loves pink and purple. So then her next one up is her purply finger. So um, it's so cute. But as we get older, these cute little things that kids do just aren't cute anymore. And um, it, and as an adult, we cannot claim that ignorance is bliss um, because God has entrusted so much to us. And so our decisions matter. And we're going to be looking at um, the book of, of one Kings, as I said, and, and a particular king. And this king is Ahab. And um, but but if we look at what we've gone through in the series, we've seen that these kings' lives that we've we've touched on, and some of the prophets, but kings' lives has really um, their lives can be summed up in a few sentences. And I'm sure that for many of them, they jam packed a whole lot of action into their lives, be it battle, wars, marriages, households. Um, but but often what what is recorded in these in these books would be a sentence about them, and it really had to do with how they related to God. Did they please Him? Did they grieve Him? How did they live their life for God? Now I was thinking it's such a relevant question to us today. Imagine if there was a book of Connect, and each of us was mentioned there. And what would sum up your life? We we can jam pack a lot of action in, but what really sums up your life and mine? And it's always a good time to reflect. It's springtime. There's so much energy. A lot of people are just loving the weather. Let's do a bit of a spring clean in our lives and get rid of the old and in with the new and just welcome um, a new thing that God wants to do in all our lives. We shouldn't be standing still as Christians. We should be constantly growing in God. So we're going to learn a few lessons from Ahab's life. But um, what I really want us to look at too is is just um, the partnership that he also had with um, a well-known villain of the Bible, and her name was Jezebel, and, and that was his wife. But before we, we get going on, on this crazy couple, um, I want to go back to 1 Kings 16, because it speaks into his character and just God's opinion of this man. Um, and 
it, it then in 1 Kings chapter 21, a bit later, does actually repeat what it says here. But it just shows you that, that no one is beyond God's redemption. And in all of this, with everything I say, I just want to remind us that um, you might have people in your own life that you think are beyond God's help. And it's hopeless to even pray for them. But that's not true. And so there's so much hope in the story, despite how this man can be summed up. 1 Kings 16 verse 30 says, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, but and it talks about how he married Jezebel. He um, instituted Baal worship. He set up the Asherah poles. And then it makes a statement about him. It says that he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. And you might also know the incident that happened afterwards, um, after this chapter, with the prophets of Baal and um, Ahab and, and Jezebel and Elijah, and just how God, through that, proved that God was a holy, faithful, all-powerful God. Yet Ahab still doesn't learn his lesson, uh, as we see with so many of these smart kings, that they weren't actually that wise after all. And we look now, and we fast forward to 1 Kings chapter 21, and we get we look at his life and it starts describing this area and sets the scene for the place that we're going to be looking at. And it says in verse 1 Kings 21 verse 1, Sometime later there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Now, I hadn't actually really looked at this place before. I haven't been to Israel and been around the area. Um, but if you look at images, I just Google searched images of this valley. I was quite astounded. It wasn't what I'd always in my kind of minds I pictured it to be. Um, if you look, it's actually like if you've ever been to, to Paul and, and just kind of seen it from bird's eye view and you just look across the plain and it's fertile and beautiful or the Ceres Valley, it, it kind of looks like that. Um, fertile soil, green lush springs everywhere um, and so it's a beautiful it's actually a really a place of beauty it would have been a place of prosperity because where there's water where there's fertile soil there's life and growth and so in 2012 there was an archaeological expedition to this area actually looking for neighbors vineyard um, and I was reading about it and they found I think it was something like 57 let me check 57 wine presses and olive presses so this would have been a wonderful land and if you owned land there, it was probably a really good thing. So I always thought of Naboth as a poor peasant man, but he probably was prosperous because he had a vineyard that was passed down from family to family. And um, I was looking even at what is growing there at the moment, and it's still a prosperous land. There's wheat, watermelon, melons, oranges, white beans, cowpeas, never heard of those, chickpeas, green pea, beans, cotton, sunflower, and corn, um, amongst other things. So it really is a, a diverse and beautiful land. And then um, verse 2 says this, Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden. Since it's close to my palace, in exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard. Or, if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. So, for some reason, he's lock and loaded on it. And we don't know if this is just the reason he gave or if it's the actual reason. Sometimes it could be a bit of a sales technique, you know, when someone comes to buy your car and kicks the, the tires and makes you think you're selling a, a piece of junk. Um, you know, it might have been something like that. 
or really he was that wealthy that for him pulling down a vineyard would have meant nothing and, and planting veggies instead. But it probably would be like buying Hrid Constantia and turning it into a Brussels sprout patch. Um, it's not going to be the reason why he bought Hrid Constantia. In those days, uh, the soldiers were paid with wine. Your kings had wine. It was around feasting. And so it really was a valuable commodity. But anyway, we, we look in verse 3 and it says, But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. And this was in keeping with the Levitical law, that the property was to be kept in the families, handed down to the next generation. There were even protections around it and how to get land back if it had been taken. And so he really is honoring um, what has been what has been taught and he doesn't give in to the king. I'm not sure if this is something that would have made him nervous or not, but he does stand his ground. So then we see a crazy side to a king because this is what his response he says, so in verse 4, so Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had um, said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So he lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. Hmm. His wife, Jezebel, comes in and she asks him, why are you so, so sullen? Why won't you eat? And then his response sounds more like something you would hear from your three-year-old child than the king. Um, he says this, he says, um, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Hmm. It sounds like some of the things we hear at the preschool. So Jezebel, his wife, said this. Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So it doesn't really sound like she respects her husband, but she's going to sort the problem out. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But see two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and the nobles who, live, nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letter she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place amongst the people. The two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and bore charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him out of the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He's no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. So the king needed his wife to come and protect him and put a plan in place because he couldn't do it himself. And she being the villain in the story just um, lies, she cheats, she uses a system to get this man Naboth and, and get the vineyard. Verse 17, God goes and he speaks to Elijah and sends Elijah to Naboth's way, I mean to, to Ahab's way. Now remembering that he's had a terrible encounter with with Ahab and with Jezebel and she has said she's given she's had a life sentence on on Elijah 
So God comes to him and in verse 18, he says, Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says, Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says, In the place where dogs licked up neighbor's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. So in those days, um, threatening that dogs will lick up your blood wasn't a compliment. Dogs in those weren't considered cutesy like they are today where, you know, people dress them up and take photos of their dogs um, and think they're gorgeous. It was actually quite an insult. And then um, what happens is Elijah and, and Ahab have this confrontation and Ahab says to Elijah, so you found me, my enemy. And um, Elijah says, I have found you. And it's kind of like this confrontation. If you think about their last big confrontation, it was round um, with the prophets of Baal um, and Jezebel had, had promised she was going to kill him. Now the tables get turned where the message that God is going to send in the next few verses, you, you can read it, but basically that the family line is going to cut off all his descendants. So this vineyard isn't going to get passed down from generation to generation and that Jezebel is going to get devoured by dogs and um, unless he repents. And again, the Bible repeats what had, the statements it made about, about this man Ahab. It says there in verse 25, there was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. And isn't it amazing? I think we sometimes have this, you know, glamorous picture of, of Bible times, but someone who is vile, who's capable of all kinds of crazy, although we do see this, you know, little boy side to him, but, you know, even just with his sidekick wife, um, but just what they were capable of doing and, and just that God saw him as so evil, and sometimes I think we think that the prophets just had to kind of walk to the next place, give a message and high five and leave. But actually think about the the enormity of what God was asking Elijah to do. And you really have to give this man credit for obedience. And I, I think it would be like going to the Middle East right now and delivering a message in Afghanistan to the Taliban and just saying, God says you need to repent and you know that will be a death sentence. And so you really have to applaud um, this guy, Elijah. What a hero. Um but this is how Ahab responds. He actually does listen to Elijah. And in verse 27, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. I'm not sure if it was because he was chicken that all of a sudden he got really nervous. But God does notice the repentance that this man offers. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day. I will bring it on his house in the days of his son, which is also quite interesting, but we'll get to that later. But you see, and, and what I really want us to look at is this, this character Ahab and, and his wife Jezebel, because although they are labeled evil, I know that the depths of uh, the depravity of what I am capable of, if I step out of, of God and his will for my life, that we are all capable of all kinds of evil and that we need to guard our hearts. God, through the book of Kings, shows us what pleases him and what doesn't. And so 
the Old Testament has a lot of beautiful pictures of how to please God, this holy God. And um, I don't know if you've ever been um, on the sports field, especially when you're young and learning sports, but I remember the coach blowing the whistle and everyone would get shouted at because, I don't know, you were bunching, standing in the wrong position, doing the wrong thing. But when the whistle blew, you had to freeze and then you would get an analysis of the game. But that's basically what we're going to do is just blow the whistle and, and look at what Ahab and, and this character Jezebel were doing in these moments and then we're going to blow the whistle on our own lives and, and look at what um what is in our hearts and what God is 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 wanting to maybe do and challenge us with so Ahab if you look at him he had privilege he had the privilege of being a king what actually makes royalty at the end of the day it's a crazy concept that that someone stands head and shoulders above every, all these citizens and gets the privilege and the power and the wealth and and everything that comes with it but he really by the world's standards had it all and especially in those days where where royalty really was revered and um in the in the book, I remember um, John Piper wrote a specific book called Money, Sex and Power, Living in Light of Money, Sex and Power, where he speaks about these things that, that the world has to offer. And, and in themselves, they can actually be really good. They can be gifts from God. Yet when our heart is depraved, those can be the very things that bring our, our downfall. And it seems like it was like that for, for this man Ahab, that he wanted more power. He wanted more. He sulked when he couldn't get it. And so he was so used to having privilege. Maybe he didn't know what to, how to take a no. And, 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 you know, and he had the power. His wife was boosting his ego. You're the king. You can do this. Like, just Take your rightful place. And so you have this man that is accustomed to so much, yet when he doesn't get his own way, he goes on a hunger strike and starts to sulk. It's a strange, I guess, dichotomy in his personality where, where God really paints him as an evil man who, who made God angry. And, and, and God actually had some very interesting kind of feelings that he puts forward about him. Yet he's this man who goes to his room and sulks. When it really counts, he actually can't even cope with the problems that being the king throws at him. So he relies heavily on his wife Jezebel, who's a villain. And I can't help but contrast it to another beautifully graceful woman in the Bible, and that is Esther, and the queen who just did the bidding on behalf of God's people to save them, and the grace and the um, character that she showed um, through that time. And how she used her position to really just further God's God's people and, and to help them. Although the name of God, you know, isn't mentioned in Esther. But we see so much character. And then we see this polar opposite. We see this Jezebel lady who who basically um, probably loves her position in life. She bolsters her husband's ego, builds him up. And then she's happy to do whatever she wants to get her way. She writes letters in his name. She uh, kind of gets these plans together. And she does everything she can to support her husband, but probably is also caught up in this power game that that um, she has. Her heart is really corrupt. She doesn't have a moral compass. And in fact, it's an interesting one because when I was looking at the scriptures, something that stood out to me is it almost does seem like a spiritual thing because they use the whole system. They use these Levitical laws to, to kind of catch Naboth. So they use the fast. And in those days, it usually was when, when there were tough times coming, when repentance was needed, that people would go before God and they would fast. And and so she was using something that was very godly that was put in place to try and catch Naboth. 
Then she used the two witnesses, which was also part of, of the Levitical law, which was needed. And so she's using all these systems to bring about accusations against him and cut off his family line so that they can rightfully go and get this land that now doesn't get passed down to anyone um, because she's cut off neighbor's family line, but now they can go and grab it for themselves. And so you see that um, she puts these two scoundrels in place, these two um, bad witnesses, which is needed for a capital offense um, to, to verify what was being said. And then they go and they stone them. These are two cold, heartless people who actually do not care about other people. They just are so caught up in, in the power of being royalty and, and getting what they want that they are so hard-hearted that God has to send someone to give them a message because their own conscience isn't going to speak to them. And I go, you know, how can we how can we learn from people like that? I certainly would like to think I, you know, have well, not like I know I have a conscience. I know God speaks to me. But, you know, what can you learn from two people who are pretty hard hearted and have turned their backs on God? And I think we need to put checks and balances into our own lives. So now we blow the whistle and we look at our own lives and we say, let's evaluate what is happening in our own world and how we um, are, are just relating to God and hearing his will. And the first thing that I take from it is that your character actually matters, that you could think that, you know, what we do behind the scenes and there's this, you know, this this inner world that we all have that be, is actually becoming even more complex because of lockdown, because of devices, because of everything. It's quite easy to have kind of run two lives parallel. But your character really does matter. And in tough times, in hard times, when we get the no's, when we get rejections, when we get um, just things like that King Ahab, he just couldn't get his own way. So he went and he sulked. What do you do when life doesn't go your way? And so that really is the thing. And that is when our character really shows. Then the next thing is, where are you heading and what is the price tag to it? Every decision that we make, especially the bigger ones, but even the smaller ones, has a price tag to it. We are usually doing stuff each day to either draw us closer to God or to push him away. And you look at this decision that the, this couple made, Ab and Jezebel, it had a price tag. They broke a whole lot of commandments. There was coveting, there was murder, there was lying. There was so much just to get something they wanted. And you go, you might be facing some big decisions in your life. Have you weighed up what the price is? And are the tags that are attached good and godly ones? They're definitely things that can better our walk with God and grow our walk with him. But they're things that can rob you of your reputation, your walk with God and what he's doing in your life. And then the next thing I want to ask you is who are your enablers? Ahab had Jezebel, that person that was egging him on in the wrong direction. He also had Elijah, on the other hand, who was calling him back to God. And I guess we have both influences in our life. People that might tell you that that area of gray that you're trying to navigate. And, and we often actually tend to listen to our Christian friends, um, you know, and, and put value on what they're saying. But but, you know, even Christian advice comes sometimes can go, well, you know, there's this is not black, not black or white. You know, this is a gray and and kind of speaks us into situations. And, and we need to just figure out, are you listening to people who may be egging you on in the wrong direction and to camp out in your own will instead of in God's? And that's what happened with Jezebel. She kept on getting Ab caught up in these, these situations, taking God on and grieving God's heart. 
we need to be careful and look at the influence in our as a, influences in our lives. Sometimes it's the books we read, the gurus that we listen to, and and the principles we adhere to. But those voices that speak loudly to us when we when we directing our lives, when we we deciding on how we're going to conduct ourselves, who are you listening to, and and who's possibly um, getting you into a bad direction? Then the next question I want to ask is: Are you using faith and God's word to feel wrong choices. It's so easy as a Christian to to try and rubber stamp decisions and include God in a process after we've actually made the decisions and, and try and get some scriptures to support it. When we go before God, we almost need to come as a clean slate and say, God, your will be done and show me what it is. It's so hard to actually put what we want aside but the best place to be is in the center of God's will. And sometimes that means giving up my own desires for something that God wants to open up. And Psalm 100, so not Psalm 119, Psalm 19 gives a beautiful promise and speaks about how good God's ways are and his words. And in, in verse 7, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Refreshing is such a beautiful picture. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey. Then honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. And isn't that a beautiful scripture that just speaks about the best place to be in the center of God's will? Yet we'll sometimes settle for an inferior version of it where we are just ask God to bless what I'm doing. And then the next question I want to ask you is, are you so caught up in doing what you want and what pleases you that you're forgetting to question what pleases God. Do you actually worry about God's heart and what is on it? Sometimes we can, you know, think of God as so holy and separate that we forget that he has thoughts towards us, that he does have emotions. The Bible speaks about how he has compassion, how he has love, how he has kindness towards us and also anger and jealousy. What God thinks about you, about your life and your situation really does matter. And he does have thoughts about your life. But does God's thoughts matter to you? And then the beautiful end is that if you feel like maybe you're heading in the wrong direction, that you've maybe lost or compromised in certain areas, that we have a compassionate God and we can camp out in his grace and his forgiveness and we can walk this road of just being restored to him. Because if a man like Ahab could repent and God noticed it, God will hear the cries of your heart. He longs to hear from you. He loves and delights. You know, if we look at those pictures again of, of you know, the pearl of great price, the, 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 the 99 sheep, there's such a beautiful value around someone, one person who responds to the message of the gospel. One person that chooses to, to grab that pearl and hold on to it and value what God has done. That is the God that we serve and that is the hope 
We don't want to settle for anything inferior. But as I end off, I just need to challenge you with one thing. There's this question of the Ahab's kids that I find really disturbing because I'm not sure I'd be happy knowing that. Well, I know I wouldn't be happy, not sure. I know I wouldn't be happy knowing that that still there was going to be a consequence for the next generation. And this is sadly what happens. And I was thinking about why it is. And it's a strange one, but I guess it's, you know, I think people have numerous reasons. You know, you can talk about things like generational curses and some believe in it. Some say it's not a thing, but but there definitely can be this influence that gets passed down, be it through some would say epigenetics that, you know, there's just this almost this DNA imprint. I don't know if you've read those those reports of how, um, they'll take a rat and I mean, they're always so cruel, but they'll, they'll shock it and, and give them like, there'll be a fear response that develops. And then the rat or the mouse will have babies and the babies will have the same response with, with the trigger without actually ever receiving the shock. And so they go, you know, that points to that whole thing of, of these trauma sometimes being passed down from generation to generation. Um, if I haven't explained it while well, I'm running out of time, so you, you can Google it yourself and I'm sure you'll find some interesting interesting tests um not that i endorse them but but you know there is there is this whole kind of field of people trying to explain how things get passed down to children in the next generation realistically there's another aspect that if if you if you're only repenting later in life and you're not conducting yourself in a certain way your kids are going to have um these impressionable years being watching you um just doing things to please yourself not please god and doing things the wrong way i don't know if you've heard of that statement give me a child before the age of seven and then afterwards anyone can have them but it's just that realizing that kids are so influential and so I just want to encourage parents out there, adults out there who, who really care about the next generation that actually the, the way you conduct yourself in front of your child, the spiritual input that you're giving to your child, it really, really does matter. I've been challenged once again on, on just trying to do in the craziness one spiritually significant thing a day minimum, just so that I get into the habit of just realizing that this is the most important thing. I don't think twice about taking my child to school. I don't think twice about feeding them. We need to nourish our children's souls. We need to plug them into community. Remember, you and I aren't going to be around forever. Our kids are going to have to learn to love Christian community and stand on their own two feet and love the church and love God's people. And so it really does matter. Faith needs to get bigger than our households. It needs to, kids need to start counting. Their faith needs to start counting when they leave the home. And so just to challenge you that the way you parent, the way you take God seriously, it really does matter. And and that probably is the grief that someone who who squanders their whole life and, and, and then maybe at the end of their life gives their life to God, they've robbed themselves of the opportunity to have meaningful, beautiful discussions with their children, to pray for their children, to bless them, to give them that rich spiritual heritage. So I don't know exactly what went down and why this got passed to the next generation. I've read many different reasons and I you know I haven't found one that I really think this is the answer, but I do know that for us as parents and as adults, we need to be serious about passing faith to the next generation and sending the gospel out into the future. And so I'm going to be praying for us and, and just praying for God's Holy Spirit, his spirit of truth to come and minister. And so that we won't be people that compromise, but that we'll be people that walk intimately and closely with God. Lord, I thank you as we've gone through a series of kings of just learning from the, the highs and lows. And Lord, we want to be people who make your name great. We want to be concerned about what 
is on your heart, Lord. We want to do things your way. And so we come and we submit to you. Lord, as your people, we want to bring joy to you. And Lord, we know that we just need to be filled with your Holy Spirit to have the mind of Christ, to have the spirit of truth, to be empowered to live life the way you want us to live. Lord, your ways are so good and they're so pure and they're so pleasing, Lord. And so I want to step into your will. And I know that there's so many in this congregation who who just have a heart to please you. Lord, you reward those who earnestly seek you and we want to seek you with all our hearts. Thank you that you are a God who can be trusted, that our, our faith is safe and secure in you, Lord. We celebrate that. Thank you for your goodness. Amen.